All right, if you haven't been here in a few weeks, we are in a new series called Why We Do What We Do. Some of you, you know, you're in church for a while. You might have been in church your whole life, and sometimes you wonder, why do we do certain things? Like, why do we even go to church? Or why do we, some people raise their hand while they sing, and why do we, uh, you know, why do, why do we do missions? And so there's a lot of questions. Sometimes we ask why in church, but we just kind of go along with the routine as part of tradition. So sometimes it's good to take a break and say, you know, why do we do things? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about baptism. We talked about the significance of why as believers were baptized. And last week, we talked about communion. Why God invites us to have communion or the Lord's Supper. And so this week I want to talk about a different subject. We're going to talk about why did Jesus say to people, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. Three times in the Gospels, or seven times actually, it's mentioned, Jesus said to potential followers, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. What does that really mean? So I want to talk about that today. <clears throat> I take a drink. I'm not even crying. How many of you use a GPS? How many of you even don't know what a GPS? Do you know what GPS stands for? Global Positioning System. The Global Positioning System was introduced by the U.S. Department of Defense. And about in the 1980s, they released it to the general population to use. Basically, a GPS system works off your phone or some other device that it always knows where you're at. And so if you have that GPS on your phone, it knows exactly where you're at. You can plug in the address you want to go to, and boom, it'll give you directions on how to get there. might even give you a few different ways to get to your destination. It's a great system. It's very helpful. I'm probably sure the majority of you have used a GPS system. The only problem with a GPS system is if it has the wrong information, the outcome's not going to be so good. Remember a few years ago, I was invited to preach at a church in uh, Greenville, Michigan. I was all prepared. I had my message done. I had my GPS all figured out. knew exactly how much time it was going to take me to get there. I'm driving to Greenville. I'm in the middle of a residential neighborhood. And my GPS says, you have arrived at your destination. The problem was there was no church in sight. There was only houses. So I'm like, is this a house church? What am I going to do? Fortunately, my phone still had connection there, and I looked, and nope, I'm not at the church at all. So I had to go the old-fashioned way. You go to a gas station and say, can you help me to get to where I need to be? I think sometimes we go through life with a GPS system that doesn't always have the right information. And sometimes we're going along with our life. We got some good plans. We got a good agenda. And we end up in a place where we're like, how in the world did I get here? Sometimes we end up in a situation, you're like, I should not be here at all. And you're wondering, what do I do? How do I get out? It's kind of what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about where, how do we navigate life? How do we get to the place in life where we need to be? You know, I'm really enjoying this series. I think it's been a great series so far. It's been fun for me to kind of study some of these different topics. And one thing I like about this series is it's helping to understand some of the things that you do in church that become such tradition that you forget about the significant meaning behind them. I think sometimes we do talk about denying yourself and taking up your cross. You're like, yeah, I know what that means. Yeah, I got that figured out. See, for me, it's kind of going back this week and saying, whoa, there's a lot of richness to this. There's a lot of depth to this. 
And what I like about studying these different topics, it creates a hunger in me to want to study the Bible more and to dig deeper into what some of these scriptures mean. I love Susie's idea with this, this journaling for, for Easter. It's sometimes great just to slow down and just maybe take one verse and just kind of really jump into it and really look at what it really means. But see, we have a problem sometimes in our culture where we think knowledge is equal to power. We think if we have a lot of knowledge, we have a lot of power. And that's kind, of a, that's kind of a dominant view in our culture. But see, the thing is, in Christianity, in our relationship with God, knowledge is never source of the power. The source of the power in our life is always God. It's always God. It always has been and will always be God. It's sometimes hard for us to understand that the power behind everything is God and it's not our knowledge or it's not our ability See, sometimes there's part of us that we just think if I get the right idea or if I get a little brainstorm of knowledge, things are all going to work out. But it's comforting as well to know that behind everything, the power is God in our life. And so the biggest question that we sometimes have in our life is how do we get the power of God working in our life on a daily basis? Because we all want that power of God working in our life. What do we need to do to see the power of God just flow through us all day long? So we're going to talk about today how you see the power of God work in your life is simply when you put Jesus first in your life. That's why Jesus said to his first followers, he said you need to deny yourself and you need to pick up your cross. Because Jesus wanted us to have the power of the risen Savior working in our life 24-7 every day every second. And he said, this is how you're going to do it. It's kind of a simple plan. It's really not that complicated. And it's kind of exciting, but it looks intimidating to deny and to carry a cross. In Proverbs 16.9, there's a verse that you probably heard before. It says, the heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. I like the scripture. And the scripture's pretty deep. It means two significant things. First, it means you can have all the best plans in your life. You can have the best ideas, the best aspirations, the best goals, but without the power of God in your life, all you're simply going to have is a plan. You'll have nothing more than a plan if the power of God's not in your life. See, Solomon's basically giving us a little instruction here, and he's saying, look, if you want something of value or meaning in your life, you're not going to find it in your plans. You're only going to find it with the power of God working in your life. Solomon's kind of given us a warning saying, look, you can have the best New Year's resolution. You can have the best goal plan you can possibly come up with, but without the power of God, nothing good is going to come into your life. Zechariah basically repeats Solomon in Zechariah 4, verse 6. He says, you will not succeed by your own strength or by your own power, but by my spirit, says the all-powerful God. That's what God wants us to know. That our success will come in life when the Spirit of God's work in our life. The second thing that <coughs> the second thing that Solomon wants us to understand is that you're going to need to have some understanding of the Word of God if you're going to want to see God's plans working in your life. See, the Bible's basically the owner's manual for our life. It's the instructions that we need in our life. The GPS system in the United States works off at least 24 satellites that are stationed throughout the world. Kind of like reading your Bibles, like 
sending off another GPS system, another satellite that helps navigate your path, that helps you know where you are and helps you know where you need to be at. One of the best illustrations of the connection between your success in your life and reading your Bible is found in the story of Joshua. If you go in Joshua 1, the book opens... Joshua 1 opens with the Lord saying to Joshua, he says, look, um, Moses is now dead, and you're the new leader. I'm going to give you the responsibility to take the Israelites out of the place they're at right now, and you're going to bring them into the promised land. So I'm sure there's part of Joshua that is a little bit excited. He got a promotion. He's going to be the new leader for the nation of Israel to take the people in the promised land. But there's probably part of him, <coughs> probably part of him, I need a mint. I get candy while I preach. <laughs> so there's part of Joshua that's probably thinking, man, this, I don't know if I got the best deal here. <coughs> oh, Lord, help me. Lord, I do pray that you'd help me get this message out. Lord, I pray whatever's going on in my throat, this tickle, <coughs> that you would take it away. Because this is a good message. <coughs> I worked hard this week. I'm not about ready to sit down. We might be here till 3 o'clock, but we're going to get through this message. We'll have pizza. Joshua might have been a little nervous thinking, wait a minute, I, I got to bring these people in the promised land? This is a group of people who is just fearful. They're scared. They don't trust in the Lord. So you might remember in the story of Joshua, when Moses was going to go into the promised land, he sent out 12 spies. And he said to these spies, he said, okay, go ahead of us. See what is, block, what is standing between where we are and the promised land and tell us what's separating us. So Moses sends out 12 spies, and 12 of the spies come back. The first two say, you know what? There's a lot of obstacles. There's a lot of enemies, but you know, it's really no big deal. God's more powerful, so let's not worry about it. Let's go for it. But 10 of the spies, they came back and said, oh, no, those spies are big. We are, those, those obstacles are big. So those enemies are really big. We're not going anywhere. We're going to stay right here. So you know what the nation of Israel did? They stayed right there. They were in fear, and they're in anxiety, and they would not go past the situation that they're in and get into the promised land. So this is a group of people that, Mo, that Joshua inherits. He inherits a bunch of people that are scared to move forward in the plans that God has for their life. So God says to Joshua, he says, okay, I'm going to do two things for you. This is the plan, how we're going to do this. First of all, every place that the soles of your foot touch, I'm going to give you that land. That sounds like a pretty good deal. If you walk on that land, it's yours to take. That's the first thing that God said to Joshua. And I'm sure Joshua was probably thinking, hey, that's a really good deal, but how is this going to happen? Because I know what those enemies look like. So God says to, he says to Joshua, second, he says, you know what? No one's going to be able to stand against you. No one's going to be able to stand against you. Whatever obstacle there is in your life, Joshua, preventing you from getting in the promised land, nobody's going to, stay against, nobody's going to stand against you. That's a pretty good deal. Wherever the, your feet touch, that land's going to be taken, and nobody's going to stand against you. Why is this going to happen? Is it because Joshua is such a good guy? 
that he's so courageous and so powerful? See, in Joshua 1, verse 5, it tells us, it says, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. That is why Joshua is going to be successful, is because God says, I will be with you. That's where the power comes in, is when God says, I will be with you. So next, God tells Joshua two things he needs to do. In Joshua 1, verse 6, it starts off and it says, Joshua, be strong and be courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. That's the instruction that Joshua gets. You need to be strong and courageous. And I'm sure Joshua thought this is some really good advice. I'm about ready to face some very big enemies with a bunch of people that are very scared, but could you give me a little strategy, God? How's this really going to work out? Just be strong and courageous? I mean, that doesn't just happen. So God tells him, okay, this is your strategy. This is how you're going to be strong and courageous. In verse 7, it picks up and it says, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law, Joshua, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. This is a strategy that God gives to Joshua. Just read your Bible. Just read it. Just do what it says to do. That is the simple instruction that God gives to Joshua to be successful. Now, some of you might think, well, why do I really need to read my Bible? God just said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do these things for you. If God said it, isn't it just going to happen? Why do I really have to read my Bible? After all, in Joshua 1.9, it continues to go on and it says, Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Okay, God summed up the deal again. Why didn't he say, hey, make sure you read your Bible? He didn't bring that up again. So why do we have to read our Bible? That's really a good question and probably be a good question part to this series, one, like, why do we read our Bible? Because that's probably more than just a quick little um, answer that I'm going to give you right now. See, the short answer to why we read our Bible is because when you read your Bible, it gives you a hunger to read it more. It gives you an appetite to read it more. And some of you might say, well, you're probably not going to raise your hand and say this in church, but say, you know, I read my Bible sometime and it really doesn't give me much of an appetite. It really doesn't give me a whole lot of appetite. I understand that. That's why I think it was strategic today that Susie came up with her scripture because sometimes what you need to do is just take one scripture and just meditate on it. That was the instruction that God gave to Joshua. He didn't say go memorize the whole thing. He didn't say read it and I'll give you a quiz. He said meditate on it. To meditate on it means you just slow down. And see what it has to say. Let God speak to you through the written word. It's not a marathon that you got to get up in the morning, you got to read a whole chapter or 56 verses. Maybe just read one and say, What are you saying to me in this verse, God? 
Because I guarantee if we all do the scripture reading, every day God is going to speak something different to me than to you, than to you, than to you. We're all going to come away with some other revelation from God or some meaning, pulling out a meaning in that scripture, what it means to us. And see, that makes you want to read it more because you start realizing the Bible is a conversation. It's God, the written word, but it's God speaking to you through the word. It's powerful. It's dynamic. It's not just like reading a science book that you just memorize what text is there. That's why we read the Bible. That's why God told Joshua to read the Bible. He said, you read the Bible, you're going to get more excited for me. You're going to hunger for me more. You're going to want to put me first in your life. You're going to want to be successful, and you're going to remember where success comes from. See, we want to develop a rich hunger for God in our life because God tells us we need to put him first. And it's a whole lot easier putting God first when you have that hunger in your life to do that. See, we need to put Jesus first in our life, and then it's going to make everything in our life much easier. See, when Jesus called his first disciples to follow him, that's what he said. He said, to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross, basically saying, you've got to put me first. That's a little tough to swallow that we have to put Jesus first. See, sometimes in our American view of Christianity, we like more game show Jesus, that we just get stuff. You know, you're just a contestant and you're going to give your prizes. Kind of be on the Oprah Winfrey show with Jesus. You'll get a car and you can have a car and you get a toaster. And That's sometimes how people come to Jesus. We come to Jesus with our list of what we want him to do in our life. And we present that before him and say, okay, would you do that? Because I know you got the power, but I got the plan. So we're going to work together on this, Jesus. Here's my plan. I'll take your power and boom, make it happen. We all know that doesn't work too good, but we all like to try that. We all like to really try that because we kind of want that to be that way, that I give the plan and you give the power and bang, it all happens. See, I think it's interesting that before Jesus said to his disciples the big question of lay down your life and follow me, he first said to him, who do you think that I am? See, before Jesus asks us to do something significant, to deny ourselves and to follow him, he wants us to know who he is. Why does he want us to know who he is? Because he wants us to know why we're following him. He wants us to understand what he's going to do in our life. And so he first says to his disciples, who do people think I am? We're going to read it in Mark 8, where it says, Then Jesus went on with his, his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they turned to him, John the Baptist, and others said Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And then he asked the disciples, he said, but who do you say that I am? He's saying to the disciples, now, who do you think I am? And Peter says, and I think Peter probably answered for the entire crowd, he said, you are the Christ. See, Peter understood that Jesus was the Savior of the world and that he came to rescue them and he came to save them. See, Jesus wanted to make sure that the disciples first understood who he was. And then a couple verses later in Mark 8, verse 34, and then Jesus gives the verse we're talking about today where he said, in calling to the crowd, let me start over, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain his whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his own soul? See, uh, Luke in his gospel, he goes on and he clarifies. He says, you know what? You need to take up your cross daily. Not just once. You're going to do that daily. So Jesus went from one set of scriptures to saying, who do you think I am? And they're recognizing that you are Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now he's saying to them, I want you to understand that I am Jesus. I am the Lord. I am the commander. I am the one who is in charge here. So what does it mean? What does it mean to deny yourself and to take up your cross? See, it's an important scripture because in the scripture, Jesus is inviting us into a very abundant life. He's inviting the disciples into a life that is way better than they could have ever asked or imagined or hoped for. He's saying, I'm going to give you abundant life, I'm going to give you a fulfilling life, and I'm going to give you a very satisfying life. But here's the catch. The only way you're going to get to this new abundant life is through death to yourself. And number two, Jesus is going to decide what an abundant life means. Not your opinions. And third, Jesus is going to make the decisions. See, suddenly now, freedom in Christ looks a little bit different from what you might have been expecting. See, freedom in Christ means Jesus has complete control over every single area of my life. And that's how I find freedom. But see, the good thing about Jesus wanting complete control over your life He just doesn't want to take the control away from you. He wants to take the control away from anything that has influence in your life. See, Jesus wants to take control away from any addiction that you might have or any temptation that you might have or any weakness that you might have or any sickness that you might have or any shame that you might have. Jesus' invitation to deny yourself and take up your cross is an opportunity for us to give him complete control over every single area and issue in our life so we can live in freedom. That's why God invited us to deny ourselves. It's because he wants to bring us freedom in every single area of our life. But see, first what Jesus needs to do, he needs to help you understand what is the definition of a good and fulfilling life. See, in order to deny yourself and carry a cross, you're going to have to think a little bit differently here. You might have to lay down some of your dreams or some of your goals or some of your aspirations. You might have to lay some things down. See, when we talk about denying ourselves, then we start getting a little uncomfortable because you're like, oh man, I don't like that. I don't want to give up control. There's part of us, we just want to jump in this dialogue and say, but I got it figured out. What's going to work best for me? But that's what we're trying to deny here is us being in control. See, before we can really understand what it means to deny yourself, I want to talk about two things that it's not. See, denying yourself isn't just simply maybe giving up some luxury in life. Maybe you don't 
go to Starbucks five days a week, you only go twice, or maybe you don't go on vacation, or you don't, those, those are good things to give up sometimes. Maybe God's inviting you to give those up, but that's not what he's talking about here, denying yourself some American luxuries. And second, he's not asking you to give up on your goals or dreams or ambitions. See, it's good to have goals. It's good to have dreams. It's good to have aspirations. But see, we, never, we have to remember to let God be the one that's given us the goals and the dreams and aspirations. See, there's nothing wrong with you have a plan and your plan works out well. That's great. That's wonderful. That's a good thing. See, the problem is if our plans or our dreams or our desires don't work out and we're just all upset and frustrated, that's where we sometimes run into a problem with our dreams and goals. We need to submit our dreams and goals and expectations to God, and we trust that His plan is going to work out, and if it wasn't part of His plan, it's not going to happen. That's part of denying ourselves is just giving up that to God and saying whatever happens, let God's will happen. See, to deny ourselves is simply to submit our plans to the will of God. See, if you're looking to follow Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, there's a good chance you already have the plans of God in your heart. That he probably gave you a lot of things in your life that you desire to do, and some of that is, that's great. You were created by God with a plan and a purpose and a destiny, so there are things in you that you probably desire to do. It is from God, but then the big question comes in, well, how do I know if what is inside of me, my plan, is this God or is this me? How do I know the difference? And that's kind of the big question a lot of people have. How do I know if it's my will or it's God's will? Well, you simply do what Jesus did the night before he was going to be crucified. He went to the garden and he prayed before God and he said, God, let not my will be done, but let your will be done. That is how it happens. See, Jesus went before God and said, hey, look, if there's another plan, somebody else could go to the cross, then let it happen. But Jesus said, not my will, but let your will be done. So we also pray the same prayer that God taught us in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. It says, we pray, part of the Lord's Prayer is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, denying ourselves simply means we're giving up the right to run and control our own life. We're giving up ownership of our life back to the one who truly owns us. We're saying, no longer do I get to decide when and where and how. Instead, those decisions are all up to Jesus. See, the one thing that most American people, most people in the world have in common, it's hard for us to give up things. It's hard for us to give up control. We like control. We like to call the shots. We like to decide when, where, how, how much. We like to decide it. So when Jesus is asking you to deny yourself, he is asking for something that is very, very significant. And it's very hard to do. And so Jesus would never give you a request to do something without telling you how it's going to be done. He's never going to tell you to do something and say, okay, try harder. Let's see what you can do. No, Jesus comes in, he says, I'm going to show you how you're going to do it. And see, that's the good news if you're here sweating today, thinking, I don't know about this denying thing. I'm not really excited about that. See, Jesus is going to show you how you can do it. So Jesus' way that you can do it is, you need to take up your cross. <laughs> Doesn't sound too encouraging either. 
Now imagine if you were 2,000 years ago and you were this first audience that was listening to Jesus saying, deny yourself and take up your cross. Imagine what they were thinking. See, in our culture, there's probably a lot of you here that have, Eric, you got a little cross on your chest, a little necklace, and some other people do. In our culture, that cross is a symbol of celebration. 2,000 years ago, you would not be walking around with a cross on your necklace. They would have thought you're crazy. See, a cross 2,000 years ago only meant one thing, death by the most painful and the most shameful way known to the human race. 2,000 years ago, when these men were listening to Jesus say to take up your cross, they were thinking, whoa, that is pretty significant what you're asking me to do. Are you asking me to kill, have somebody crucify me on a cross? See, the cross was always a picture of shame, of sin, and of suffering, and of separation, and ultimately death. The reason that the cross was invented to, uh, to kill prisoners or kill um, criminals was it was slow, and it was painful, and it was humiliating. And see, additionally, in that Roman culture, when you said the phrase, carry your cross or take up your cross, it meant one thing, that you were admitting you were guilty and the punishment was just. So that's what these original disciples are listening to. They're thinking, you asked me to take up my cross? You want me to admit that I am guilty and I deserve to be hung on a cross to die? Are you asking me to go through the most shameful and the most humiliating process known to man to die? You can kind of understand now why the disciples didn't hang around too long when Jesus was being executed. They were probably thinking, am I next? I'm sure some of those disciples were wondering, when they're watching Jesus go to the cross and they're watching Jesus hang on the cross, I'm sure that some of them were wondering, oh man, I remember when he told us about this, to deny yourself and take up your cross. I wonder if he was really serious. Are we next? I'm sure some of them were wondering, did I agree to that? Because that would be a pretty scary position to be in. You just watched this man that you've been following for three years go to the cross, and now you're wondering, am I next? Is that what he meant? You can understand why Jesus' disciples kind of left the scene after he was crucified. That's kind of what I kind of think. See, it wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection that the disciples began to understand what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross. See, before the resurrection, the cross only meant pain and suffering and shame and separation and defeat. But see, now, after the resurrection, the meaning of the cross totally changes. Now the meaning of the cross is a celebration. It's a celebration of life. It's a celebration of what Jesus went through. So you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they sinned? Their sin led to shame. And their shame led to separation. And their separation left to suffering. And it ultimately ended in death. And that's what the cross did. It was the sin of the criminal. The sin put Jesus on the cross. And as he carried that cross, he took on shame. 
And then he took on suffering. And then he took on separation. Then ultimately, he was killed. But not for long. But not for long. See, now the cross means to us a picture of restoration. And that's why Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross. To take up your cross means to acknowledge what we are guilty of and daily go to Jesus with our sin or with our suffering or with our separation and daily bring it to the cross. Because when you bring that to the cross, then what do you get in return? You get restoration. You get wholeness. You get healing. You get victory. And you give eternal life. See, when Jesus invites us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, it's an invitation to receive every single thing that the cross has for us in our life. That's why Jesus invites us to deny ourselves, because he wants us to have a life that is way more than sin and suffering and separation. He wants us to have the best plan for our life. He wants us to put Jesus first because Jesus will protect us. See, the cross is a reminder that Jesus will protect me. It's a cross is a reminder that Jesus wants to bring victory in my life. The cross is a reminder that I don't have to live with sin or shame or separation or sorrow, but I can always bring that to the cross. See, when we take up our cross, it's always a reminder to us of our complete dependence on Jesus. We have to be completely dependent on him. And then I love it in the middle of Mark 8. In the middle of when Jesus is telling his disciples to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, he's saying, I want you to do it for my sake. Oh, I forgot to do the slide. He says, uh, he says I want you to do it for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. That's why Jesus wants us to deny ourselves take up a cross, he wants us to do it out of love. He wants to do it out of, out of compassion. He wants us to think of other people. He wants us to think about other people that don't know him or that are lost or that are marginalized or that are broken or that don't have a relationship with Jesus. He wants us to think about people that are separated from him. That's why he says, do this for my sake and for the gospel. But that's hard to do. It's always hard to put Jesus first because we have this natural tendency to put ourselves first. That's kind of our default, to put yourself first. So the point is, Jesus isn't giving you instruction in life saying, okay, I want to make life harder on you. But Jesus says, I want to shift your focus the point is to shift our focus on the one who can make it easier for us. I love this quote by Judah Smith where he says, if we are truly going to deny ourselves, then denying yourself can only be done when you are preoccupied and consumed with someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. That's how we're going to deny ourselves and take up our cross when we just focus on Jesus, not focusing on trying to be more courageous. And that's how Joshua did it. How was Joshua able to focus On getting the people in the promised land is be focusing on God's power. 
not focusing on his need to be courageous. See, we need to focus on what it means to follow the followers of Jesus. See, we put Jesus first, and we put Jesus first. He says, I'm going to go before you. That's a good deal. That when Jesus is before first, he goes before us into every single situation that we're facing. He goes before us into the doctor's office. He goes before us into any bad news. He goes before us and into any upsetting phone calls. He goes before us into any exams. He goes before us into any difficult situation we have in our life. That's why Jesus wants to be first. He wants to be first so he can make provision and preparation for us wherever we're going. And that's what we get in return to put Jesus first in our life. We get exchange, all of our guilt and our shame and anxiety. We get a Savior who's going to go first before us. So we never experiencing anything alone or in isolation. And we have a Savior that wants to give us a heart for the lost and the broken and the marginalized. It's a tough message. It's a tough message to put, deny ourselves and put Jesus first, but Jesus said, just focus on me, and it's going to work out. I think you just go back to the instructions to Joshua. Just meditate on your Bible. Don't make it such a big deal. It's not that tricky. Just slow down. As Brody even said in the introduction, as Susie was saying, just find a scripture. Slow down and read it. I'm encouraged. We want freedom. We want freedom in our life. So we got to give God all the control. We got to give him all the control over every single issue in our life so we can walk in freedom.